Hello, and welcome to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. I tend to focus on art house and world cinema. On today's episode, I will be talking about a very intense film about war. It's called Come and See, and it's from 1985, and it's a Soviet film. And so I had a really intense experience of watching this film, and I wanted to talk about it, and I wanted to dig in to everything about this film and why I think it is probably one of the most important films ever ever made. And it's really a monumental, very serious film about war, violence, and horror. And so I will be digging into that film shortly. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name's Caitlin. I'm a writer. I'm a dreamer. Um, I love literature, art, and poetry. I'm someone who's very curious about the world, curious about other people, other lives. And um, I crave knowledge. And I just really love art in all of its forms, whether it's cinema, literature, music, dance, you know, all kinds of uh, forms of art. Um, I feel very enriched by them. But cinema, as an art form, has really taken over my life in the last few years. I really got into art house cinema around 2011. And ever since then, I have just been madly in love. So this podcast is my outlet. It's the way that I express how I feel about all these different films that I watch. And I live in a rural area. Um, there is no art house movie theater where I live. There's no access to any kind of cinephile culture. So I'm really creating a space for myself through this podcast to explore all the films that I love. Um, this podcast does have a Patreon where you can financially support it. I have all kinds of rewards and extras available to people who become patrons, including bonus episodes. You can find my page at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. At one level, you can get a shout-out in each episode, so I just want to take a second to do my shout-outs. So I'd like to give a shout-out to Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, Jesse, Lindsay, and Olivia. Thank you all so much for being patrons. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all of you who listen, who share, and I understand that not everybody can financially support the podcast. Um, some, th- some things that you could do that are totally free are you could share the podcast on social media when I release the episodes. And if you use iTunes, I would really love it if you could leave a review of the podcast there. Um, reviews help it get better placement in the directory in like the TV and film category on iTunes and it would just be really helpful you know it's just it would take like probably a few seconds or a minute and just leave a review you know and and saying that you love the podcast or you enjoy what I'm doing I would really appreciate that and um, that's something that you could possibly do if you'd like to so I'm going to talk about come and see but before I do that I want to talk about something really recent that happened. Time Magazine released its Person of the Year, and they chose all the women that have um, come forward and spoken out about sexual harassment. And Ashley Judd 
is on um, the cover and she's an actress as many of you know and as we know the Harvey Weinstein scandal really broke things open when it came to this conversation about sexual harassment and sexual assault and sexual violence against women and also men some out some revelations have come out about the way uh, men um, have been treated as well. Terry Crews has been very honest about that. And we've heard about violence against children in Hollywood and, and children being molested. So this is a big cultural moment. I've talked about it on other episodes of the podcast. And I've expressed a fear and a worry that it will not lead to systemic or institutional change. I don't know if I've seen that yet. You know, we, we do see some people losing their jobs, um, uh, but I'm, I'm still, there's like this part of me that is still a bit, I don't want to say cynical, but is just worried, you know, that when the attention dies down and will, will men keep getting away with these crimes and with this violence? And it's, I think this is an important first step. And I think a lot of people are saying, oh, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. I think we need to temper that a little bit. I, I'm skeptical is what I'm saying, because we also have something happening right now with Roy Moore, where he's been accused by half a dozen women that, that he harassed and assaulted them when they were teenage girls. And he is getting even more support from people. So on the one hand, I think we see some progress in certain areas like in Hollywood and and um, and places like that. But in the realm of politics, we're seeing women who have come forward and accused Roy Moore and they're not getting lauded. They're not getting, you know, he's not stepping down. He's not losing support. If anything, he's gaining support. And there are a lot of people that don't believe the women and don't believe the allegations. And so. I think that we need to be realistic. You know, I think we certainly won't, should hope that this is a big moment, that things are going to change, that women are going to get more respect, um, and that, uh, you know, the violence that they face, um, will change. It's just, what I'm trying to say is that this vis visibility of an issue does not always translate in on the ground change. Look at, in the last few years, the explosion of trans women in media, especially trans women of color, like Janet Mock and Laverne Cox. We've seen this big shift, right, in representation in, in television especially, of trans women. And yet trans women continue to be murdered at very high rates. And, and transgender people continue to face violence and discrimination in their everyday lives. So we have people talking about the issue. We have this visibility of transgender people, but that does, that hasn't necessarily materially changed the situation for transgender people. So this is, we still have a lot of work to do is what I'm trying to say is the conversations happening. It's happening on social media. It's, you know, it's taking place and it's taking place in the media. But when women go to work, when a housekeeper goes to her job, when a waitress goes to her job, when a woman goes to a factory and her boss is coming on to her, what is the recourse for those women and how will their lives change? 
and that's what I'm still worried about but I am so glad that Time Magazine chose these women and um, several days before Time Magazine released um, their cover that was my choice I tweeted about I said that my choice would be everybody who's come forward about sexual harassment and sexual assault I think it's brave I think it's courageous I think it's necessary I think it has has changed the conversation it has made sexual violence more visible and 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 I would never say that that's a bad thing that is a very good thing that the silence has been broken about this let's just keep in mind that we still have a lot to do and that women are still not equal women are still fighting women are still struggling still being hurt you know and that our work continues. It always continues, right? All right, on to our film. So this film is called Come and See, and it is a Soviet film. It's made by a director named Elam Klimov, Klimov and it was released in 1985. I don't know how many people have heard about this film or have heard of Klimov, um, but this is a film that I had wanted to watch for years this is one of those films that has just always been on my watch list. It's always interested me. I have a huge interest in Soviet cinema. Um, few things move me quite as much as Soviet cinema. I have seen some tremendous, extraordinary films. Um, some of my favorites are um, The Cranes Are Flying. That's a really good one. Uh, Letter Never Sent, that's by um, the same director. Um, Ballad of a Soldier. Um, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. Larissa Shapitko's The Ascent, which is also a war movie. And Larissa Shapitko was actually Elam Klimov's wife. Um, she tragically died, though. She died quite young, I think. But she also made a masterpiece about uh, war, which is called The Ascent. Um, I'm a big Andrei Tarkovsky fan, of course. My favorite film by him is The Mirror. And um, so that's another film that I really love. So I think I've, I think I've named all my favorite. Oh, Man with a Movie Camera. That is such an amazing film. Um, a very early Soviet film, I think, from the 1920s or 30s. I still need to watch some Eisenstein. I haven't explored his work yet. Still have a few by Tarkovsky that I need to explore. But Soviet cinema is just fascinating to watch. And um, especially the Soviet films about the war, about the Second World War. And Come and See is set during the Second World War. Um, the Soviet Union... Uh, they lost millions and millions of people. They incurred huge amounts of loss um, during that war, as did a lot of Europe. I mean, the Second World War is a cataclysmic event, and it's something that interests me. I, I watch quite a few films about it, actually, whether it's um, what Germany went through or Japan went through or the Soviet Union or Poland or... Um, I recently saw Ashes and Diamonds and Canal, um, which is uh, two Polish films. So I'm interested in the experience of World War II for everybody that was involved in it. And the more films that I watch about the Second World War, the more I am just 
astounded that anybody survived. I mean, you have places being completely leveled. You have cities reduced to rubble. I just, you have starvation, you have atrocities, you have the Holocaust, obviously. Like, how did anybody survive this war? I just don't know. And um, I think the Second World War has a lot to teach us. And I think it has a lot to show us, especially with the rise of fascism, the rise of Nazism, and author authoritarian, totalitarian governments. Um, and I think it can... And, and the way propaganda was used, especially in Germany, I see parallels between that time and now. It's not exactly the same. You can't make, you know, broad generalizations, but the way that a charismatic leader can become very powerful, the way people can be convinced of things, of lies, of propaganda, I'm seeing things like that happen here in the United States with the presidency of Donald Trump. I'm seeing a portion of our population um, profoundly disconnected from reality and facts and and buying into right-wing extreme propaganda. And um, so I, I always turn to the Second World War um, because I just think it has a lot to show us in, in that way. But Come and See is... Um, it's an extraordinary film and I really feel like it's, it's become a part of me. It's a very graphically, um, violent film. It's about, um, the Nazi invasion of Belarus. Um, so, uh, which those of you who are aware of that country, it's Belarus. And, um, it was just um, a lot of atrocity happened in Belarus and throughout the Soviet Union when the Nazi invasion happened. And I'm going to go into more about that later on in the review. Right now, I'm just at a stage where I want to talk in a more general way about the film. And um, it's about a young boy. And it's about um, him witnessing the atrocities that the Nazis committed against villagers in Belarus. So that is sort of a basic outline. If you haven't seen the film, there will be spoilers. I will be talking in depth about the film in this review. So if you'd rather not hear that, then don't listen. <laughs> or if you have seen the film, then you have no issue, right? Um, I, like I said, I'd wanted to see this film for years. I saw it via the website Filmstruck, filmstruck.com. I don't have any kind of partnership with them or sponsorship. I'm not being, I'm not, I don't get anything for mentioning them in this episode. It's just a streaming site that I use. And um, the Criterion Collection is part of Filmstruck. There's Filmstruck, which is one part and you get, you get access to certain films. And then there's this other thing called the Criterion Channel that is sort of an add-on. And that's where Come and See was playing when I watched it. I, I don't know when it might expire. so, But um, to see this film, that's how I saw it, was via Filmstruck. I'll probably never watch this film again. This will probably be the first and last time that I watch this film. But I don't think that I necessarily need to watch it again. Because I think this is one of those films. And this is why I say that it's monumental and, dare I say, life-changing. I don't know. Um, 
I, w I would say it's life-changing. I mean, it's it's just one of those films that um, it's rare that you encounter something so visceral and so powerful. And I find certain scenes of the film playing in my head now. I mean, this is what films do. They sort of implant these images in your head and you can never get them out again. It becomes part of your being. It becomes part of you. It is... It's a brutal film. It's a grueling film. It's more than two hours. It's two hours, 22 minutes. But this is a serious film. It is serious, deeply serious, about showing human suffering and the horror of war and violence. And I'm doing this episode. I hadn't planned on it. There are certain films that I will not do episodes about because I don't feel capable of it. I don't feel... Or it feels so much bigger than me. It feels like there's no way I could talk about this film. Um, there's no way I could do justice to this film. This is one of those films where I feel that way, honestly. I hadn't planned on doing an episode, but the day after I watched it, thoughts started to form, and I started to feel things, and I started to um, outline this episode, and I started to write down thoughts, and something started to form inside of me. And so I knew that I needed to do an episode, that it was, it was an imperative that I do an episode and that I record my reaction to the film and that I explore my reaction and that I explore the film itself. And I really feel like my skin has ripped up, has been ripped off with this film. It, it leaves you completely raw and you just feel like your, your skin's been torn off. Um, I had to stop several times as I was watching it. I can't imagine what it was like for people to see it in a theater. When it came out in 1985, 1985 represented the 40th anniversary of the Soviet victory in World War II. Because World War II, World War II for those of you who are maybe not um, knowledgeable about it, lasted from 1939 to 1945. So 1985 represented the 40th anniversary of the end of World War II and the Soviet victory. And um, it was actually a very popular film. Tens of millions of people, at least in the Soviet Union, saw the film. It was actually a very big, very big hit. And as I say, this is a this is a war film, but for me, I would almost categorize this as horror. To me, this is horror, you know. I know a lot of people like vampire films and they like zombie films and you know, there's a lot of people that love horror films and they love that genre. I don't watch a ton of horror films. For me, films about World War II, films about war are horror films. It's it this film the real horror about this film is that it happened. That a lot of what is in the film is based on eyewitness testimony. Um, and the real experiences that people in Belarus went through during World War II. And it is truly horrific. And, you know, why talk about a film like this? Why watch a film like this? I'll talk about that more at the end of the episode. But right now I just want to say... I know that this is a hard subject matter for some people, that especially here in the United States. We don't really, we like our war films in a particular way. We like war films that are patriotic. We like war films that make the United States especially look like heroes and good guys. 
we like a linear narrative and we like a good guy and a bad guy and we like to reinforce this narrative of good versus evil and good always overcomes evil and um and they like the violence to an extent they like the violence if it's the hero you know doing the violence to the bad guy and to the bad guy who's very dehumanized and you know um uh, just he's pure evil, you know, and here's the good United States American guy killing him or shooting him. We like this mythology, you know, and we like this um, nationalism and patriotism with our war films, especially, I think. We don't take to gritty war films, to, um, to more artistic war films. Um, I would say this is artistic, that it, it is, um, it's saying something about war in a more nuanced and complex way, um, in a way that I don't think a lot of American audiences would like as much. Um, it's, it's a, almost a fragmented kind of film. It's hallucinatory. It's, it's really surreal in some ways. I think it would be hard for like a mainstream audience to follow it. And it's very realistic, almost hyper-realistic, where you feel like you're watching a documentary opposed to a feature film. And I think that's why I myself had to stop at times because it was so difficult to watch. It felt very real at times and very, um, very intense. But I think films like this are important because I think they can change people. I think they can affect people who are open to them or who see them. And I wish more people would see films like this about war. And I think the way we react to films like this um, and how we react in general to stories about war violence, genocide, atrocity. I think that means something. I think making these films means something, and I think our engagement with these films means something. And that it matters. It matters profoundly. You know, when people go to a mainstream war film and they just get this particular narrative reinforced to them that good triumphs over evil and the American is always the good guy. You know, when you when you never see anything that's critical, you know, or, or that, or that, and what I'm also trying to say is that films like that glorify war and they romanticize war. And that's very dangerous to make war look heroic, to make it look fun or to make it look, um, to make that violence look sexy, you know, or beautiful. The, the aesthetics of violence, the aesthetics of, um, of war is profoundly dangerous, I think, to make that seem beautiful, you know, and come and see does not do that. You do not come away from this film thinking, you know what, war is amazing, war is great, that's what I want to do. You get what I'm saying? It shows the bare reality and, um, how war gets represented means something you know what is shown what is not shown what can the audience bear what can the audience not bear to see um 
what narratives are being reinforced? How is masculinity being shown? How is violence being shown? All of this matters. It matters profoundly. You know, it's still so strange to me living in the United States that we have two wars going on. We have a war in Iraq and a war in Afghanistan. And we have no idea what in the world is happening. We're not informed. It's completely two hidden wars. We know absolutely nothing about it. And we only see one side of it, always, the American side. And then, of course, the other side is dehumanized and, and demonized in a lot of ways. But that's neither here nor there. But what I'm saying is that war films matter. And this film in particular, I wouldn't say it has an agenda. I wouldn't say it has this agenda to be anti-war or anything like that. But it it shows war in in all of its horror. And it doesn't back away from that. And so I think that can be really challenging for certain audiences. But I think if there is someone in the audience or the audience in general is open to being challenged, to seeing something that's raw, to seeing something that is much more authentic and complex, then I think a film like this could change someone or it could affect people and change the way they see war, the way they see violence. So I do want to give a little bit of background about the film. As I say, it was directed by Elam Klimov. And I'll just say from the outset, I did my best with these with these names, with these Russian and uh, Soviet names. Uh, I looked for pronunciations. It was not easy. Some of them I have just kind of had to go with my gut that this is maybe how it's pronounced. So I don't mean any disrespect to anybody who may be, um, you know, from these regions or know about the language better than I do. I'm just doing my best, but I really wanted to talk about this film and I didn't want to let errors in pronunciation keep me from talking about it. And so I've just done my best. As I say, this film came out in 1985, but it actually took almost a decade for Klimov to get it made. Um, the Soviet censors had a lot of issues with the script, I think. Um, I watched this really great interview with Klimov on YouTube. It's in three parts. It just, the title is Elam Klimov on Come and See. I don't know, uh, the source of, of the, um, interview. I don't know what year it was made. He died in 2003. It, he looks pretty old. In the interview, so I'm thinking it was maybe 2000, 2001, something like that. He said, and so a lot of the things that everything that I say that's quoted by him is from that interview, and it's his own his own words. But he said he wanted to make a serious film about war because the world the war had impacted him. He had gone through um, the Second World War. Let me see when he was born. He died in 2003, as I say. Um, let me see. He was born in 1933. Okay. So he was quite young when it when it happened. He was born in Stalingrad uh, in Russia. And um, he saw bombings. And his family 
uh, he, I guess he had some siblings. He he was with his mother. They crossed the Volga River in 1942. And he, in that interview, he describes the river and the city as being ablaze during that crossing. He also described his mother covering him and his siblings with like blankets, but also covering them with her body. And he said his memories of that experience are very strong, his memories of the war. And he said that, you know, crossing the Volga, going through all that, he said it was, quote, an excursion to hell, and it lives in me forever, unquote. So I think in many ways, Klimov's um, need to make a, he wanted to make a war film. He, he said that, he said that I had to make this film. So I think it comes from a very personal place in a way. You know, um, even though he is not from Belarus, he was from Stalingrad, but he wanted to talk about the Second World War and he wanted to make a serious film. And I think that is his own word, serious, about the war, because this is something that lives inside of him, something that scarred him and wounded him and haunted him. And so making this film comes out of a very personal wounding in his own life. But then of course I think he's trying to he's trying to commemorate what happened. He's trying to preserve and document these stories and I'll talk more about that. He wrote the screenplay. He co-wrote it with a writer named Alice or Aless Adamovich um who actually wrote a novel about the Soviet occupation of Belarus during the Second World War. The film itself was filmed entirely in Belarus. So everything you see in the film, it is in Belarus. The original title of the film was Kill Hitler, which is very interesting. Um, th those of you who have seen the film, you know that at the end, um, the young boy, um, Flora, um, he actually shoots this picture of Hitler. He he finds this picture in like a mud puddle and he shoots the picture over and over again with his gun. And um, it's a very interesting ending. Um, it shows archival news footage of the war and, and different places during the war and, and bombings and, and different things. But then it shows them being reversed. And so there is... Um, this idea, he's shooting this poster of Hitler almost as though he could have killed Hitler. You know, that if somebody had killed Hitler, say when he was a child or when he was an adult or anything, if he had been assassinated at some point, then all of history would be different if somebody could have killed Hitler, if somebody could have stopped him. And Klimov says... um in his own words, he says that that title, what he meant by it was not literal, you know, kill Hitler. But he said, quote, kill a Hitler in yourself, unquote. And um, he was talking about how inside of people they have demons, you know, those sort of baser instincts of people to buy into nationalism, to buy into right-wing extremism or fascism. So his, that original title, Kill Hitler, that's what he's trying to say. I would almost take it even further and I would say we need to try to stamp out that kind of extremism before it grows. And so the ending brought that to mind for me too, is that 
if you could have stopped Hitler somehow, if you could have stopped some of the conditions that allowed him to become popular and to take power and um, how different history would have been, how different the world would be. And so it's very disturbing to me to see people in my own country um, espousing Nazi and fascist ideals. It's very disturbing. Recently, the New York Times, there was a really big controversy recently because they did a profile on a Nazi, on um, somebody living in like a rural area. I don't know where it was, though. Where did he live? I don't know. But it was sort of like the Midwest, I think. And it was just this very strange profile about him. It was... It did not challenge his Nazi views, his his fascist right wing views about people, and and um and he said some terrible things about Jewish people, about all kinds of different people, and I mean, make no mistake, these Nazi um this Nazi rhetoric is violent. You know, it's when they talk about wanting a world of white people, that's violent. What what do they need to do to achieve that world? They need to get rid of anybody that doesn't fit into that idea. You know? That is, it's a violent rhetoric. It's a violent philosophy. And yes, it's words. But it leads to violence, as we saw in Charlottesville. Um, months ago, here in 2017. Um, where... There was a Nazi rally and a young woman named Heather Heyer was was run over by one of the, the Nazis at that rally. It's a violent ideology and um, it must be confronted, it must be interrogated, it must be critiqued. You cannot just let someone say these things. In a mainstream publication, without any kind of contextualization of, of those views, I mean, this profile was profoundly wrong. It was terrible. Um, in this day and age, with rising extremism, we have got to interrogate this ideology. You don't, you don't just let people say these things about minorities or about Jewish people or about women and not push back and not challenge them and not confront them. That's not the way it works. And yes, some people like these things where it's like, oh, let them hang themselves by their own words or something. In this context, it didn't work. What it did was make him seem okay and make him seem normal. And unfortunately, there are more people that agree with his views than I think we would like to think. And that it is pretty widespread in the country. I mean, how can you deny it when 60 million people go and vote for Donald Trump? So we have a huge problem. But um, when Klimov was talking about the Kill Hitler original title, that made me think of that. Of how do we stamp this out? Because we see where it led in the 1930s and the 1940s. It led to genocide. This is an ideology that leads to violence and genocide because you're saying that there are certain groups of the population who don't have the right to exist. And that's how you have people in Belarus being slaughtered 
by the Nazis is because the Nazis often looked at the different groups of the Soviet Union um, as lesser than, as subhuman, along with Jewish people that they also slaughtered and massacred. Um, this is where this ideology leads, right? And so that's why the Second World War, it's still so relevant, and yet it is so far away. You know, it's so many decades away. It's this very remote history to a lot of people, which I think is why Klimov and, and other directors made these films to begin with. You know, for him in 1985, it's 40 years. That that probably already seemed like a really long time from the Second World War. I would imagine in his mind, he's trying to preserve this history in some way and to make sure that it's not forgotten and that what the people of Belarus went through is documented in some way and remembered and film can be a way of doing that you know it can be a way of 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 keeping that memory of the past alive and um but they eventually changed the title to come and see and it's from a passage in the bible um that it's urging uh, the reader or whoever in, in the, um, that part of the Bible to look upon the carnage and aftermath of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and come and see is this phrase that recurs throughout these lines. Um, Wikipedia has the exact uh, lines in the Bible. looking for it it's from chapter six of the apocalypse of john where in the first third fifth and seventh verses is written come and see and here's one portion quote and when he had opened the fourth seal i heard the voice of the fourth beast say come and see and i looked and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him and power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. And so I think that echoes Klimov earlier saying, talking about his own excursion to hell and that a lot of this film does feel apocalyptic and it feels like, it feels like you're descending into hell, you know, into Dante's Inferno, you know, and, um, that's what makes it so disturbing, I think. Also, Klimov was inspired by um, his co-screenwriter, Adamovich. Um, Adamovich helped put together a book with some other authors, and that book is called I Am From a Burning Village. It, it This book collected stories by people in Belarus, and it recorded the atrocities that they had witnessed. And so Klimov, in his interview, he says that this book is a touchstone for him, and it also helped him avoid falsehood. That he's he is pulling from um, the actual testimonies. Now, Adamovich had written, I think, a novel about um, some atrocities, but this film is not an adaptation of Adamovich's book. But it it takes from it a bit. It takes from these testimonies. It's I guess, you know, it's 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 its own unique story, but it is based on these eyewitness testimonies 
of actual villagers from Belarus who saw these atrocities committed by the Nazis. And so I want to um, talk a minute about something. And I know I haven't even gotten to the film. There's so much to talk about with this film. I'm trying to, I'm ta I want to talk about the film, but I want to talk about other things, you know, that the film is, is raising for me and that, that I'm thinking about. So after watching this film, I decided I was going to start a book. Um, and it's by one of my favorite writers called us. Uh, her name is Svetlana Alexievich, and she recently won the Nobel prize in literature. She won it a few years ago. And if you haven't read her book, Voices from Chernobyl, you need to do that. It is a, an amazing masterpiece. But her one of her most recent books, um, which was actually published quite a few years ago, but because of her Nobel Prize, more of her works are being translated into English. It's called The Unwomanly Face of War. And the subtitle is An Oral History of Women in World War II. Really, it's about Soviet women. It's about um, how Soviet women um, fought in World War II. They were often, they were on the front lines um, and and fighting alongside men. Um, from the description of the book, it says these women, quote, these women, more than a million in total, were nurses and doctors, pilots, tank drivers, machine gunners, and snipers. They battled alongside men, and yet after the victory, their efforts and sacrifices were forgotten. So it's um, it's a book about these women's testimonies. It's an oral history, which Alexievich is known for, and that's what she did with Voices from Chernobyl as well. And so it's really about this forgotten history of Soviet women fighting and engaging in the Second World War. And it's interesting to note that Alexievich was also inspired by Adamovich's I Am From a Burning Village. Um, so it's interesting how this book and this film sort of overlapped for me. And I didn't realize there would be so many connections. And that's why I wanted to talk about it in this review. So this is what Alexievich writes in The Unwomanly Face of War. Quote, Once a book fell into my hands, I am from a burning village. I had experienced such a shock only once before when I read Dostoevsky. Here was an unusual form. The novel was composed from the voices of life itself, from what I had heard in childhood, from what can be heard now in the street, at home, in a cafe, on a bus. There, the circle was closed. I had found what I was looking for. I knew I would. So this book, I Am From um, a Burning Village, it inspired Alexievich and helped her figure out a form and a structure for the work that she wanted to create in gathering oral testimony, gathering the, gathering people's testimony of history, and then putting those voices together and sort of, I would say, especially voices from Chernobyl, it's sort of this mosaic of voices that she puts together um, in order to make you feel some kind of personal connection to history and to really salvage history and to salvage what these people experienced. 
And so I wanted to share a few quotes Alexievich says about war, and then I'm going to talk more deeply about the film. Quote, war is an all too intimate experience and as boundless as human life, unquote. And I think this is why I'm attracted to certain films about war is because what you find in some of these films, but especially something like Come and See, is that you find just about everything in the human condition. I mean, suffering, pain. There's some joyful moments. People are cracking jokes. People are laughing. Um, even in the midst of this horror, there's just, it's, I think Alexievich is very right when she says that. It's an intimate experience and, as she writes, as boundless as human life. It is this boundless experience. And so I think the really great films about war are trying to capture as much of that experience as possible. Alexievich also writes, quote, I would like to write a book about war that would make war sickening and the very thought of it repulsive, insane, so that even the generals would be sickened, unquote. And I thought this is the perfect quote to talk about Come and See, because this film is grueling, this film is brutal, this film is sickening at times, because of the way it was filmed, and the graphic nature of it, and the hyper-realist aspect of it, the hallucinatory aspect of it. It makes war sickening. I think it does what Alexievich. It does in cinema what Alexievich is trying to do through writing and through her books. And um, that is why I think this is a monumental film and a monumental war film. Because it makes war sickening. It shows you how disgusting it is how horrific it is and it makes that real to you it makes it visceral you know Klimov in his interview talked about how there were women and who knows if it was just women who saw the film and they had to like call ambulances for these people they had to be taken out I mean imagine watching this film if you went through World War II if you experienced some of these atrocities the way some people in the Soviet Union in the 1980s I'm sure would remember what they had been through in some of these villages in the Soviet Union you know or in the Soviet states but I think that's a very powerful quote to make war sickening you know, how do you represent war in a way that, as I said before, does not play into an aesthetics um, of beauty? You know, that doesn't make it beautiful or glorious or, you know what I mean? Like, that doesn't make violence beautiful. <laughs> That's really important. So it stars two young actors, um, Alexei Kravchenko. He plays Flora, and he is our main character. He's about 13, 14, 15. He's like a teenage boy. And there's also another young woman called Olga Miranova, and she plays a young girl named Glasha, who he meets. Um, this film takes place in 1943, if I am correct. Let me make sure. 
yeah, it takes place in 1943. Now, the Soviet, not the Soviets, the Nazis had invaded Belarus on June 22nd, 1941, and they occupied Belarus until August of 1944. In that period, two million Belarus people died, either through these massacres, these atrocities, or through fighting on the front lines with the Soviet army. Over the course of that time from 1941 to 1944, over 600 villages in Belarus were destroyed by the Nazis. This film is an excursion to hell. And um, it starts with this young boy, Flora, and he's looking for a gun in the sand where he lives in Belarus and he finds it. He's later sort of conscripted into the partisans of Belarus just these people who are fighting in the forest they're trying to fight back against the Nazis and that is how he becomes sort of engaged in the war but the partisans go off and he's left behind and I guess they're sort of trying to protect him but over the course of the next few days or whatever he will witness various things and I'm gonna talk about some particular scenes um, and I'll, I'll talk more about all this in a minute. But um, there are no heroics in this film. It, it does not glorify masculinity or violence. But it is graphic and it is intense. Though I thought it was really interesting in that interview. Klimov said that he actually thought the film was quite reserved. And he uses the word reserved. He feels that he actually showed restraint. Because he could have shown much more than he did. But if he had shown all of that, it might have become unwatchable for a lot of people. So I thought that was really interesting. I mean, here is this film that people are like having to be ferreted away on ambulances when they watch it. And he thinks that it's quite reserved. And when I think back on it, the things that make this film so difficult to watch, it's not necessarily that you see tons of blood or that you see you know, intros or, or anything like that. There are various things that he uses to make it a very visceral experience, which I'll get to in a moment. As I said, this is a serious film. It's the film that Klimov wanted to make. It's the film that he felt he had to make, obviously because of his own experience in Stalingrad when he was a child, and also because the people of Belarus had suffered a lot of atrocities. This was, interestingly enough, Klimov's final film. Now, he this film came out in 1985, and he dies in 2003. So he went 18 years without making a film. This was his final film. I feel like in a lot of ways it was, it was his last statement. Um, and he described making the film as an ordeal. And I would describe watching it at times as an ordeal. So it... It sounds like it was just a very grueling uh, experience for him to make it. It took him almost 10 years to get it made. <laughs> it took about eight years for him to go from, you know, writing the script and then finally being able to get actors, finally being able to shoot it. So this was a huge ordeal for him, but he obviously would not have gone through it if it wasn't worth it, if it wasn't something that he needed to make. And, um... 
So now I'm going to talk about some of the specifics of the film, which I know it has taken me a long time to get to this point. I do apologize. I just, I want to talk about how he makes war seem sickening and the tools that he uses. Um, as I said, it's, it's, it's hallucinatory in many ways. It's, there's a surrealism to it. And, um, it's not this straightforward narrative. There, there's no, I don't want to say there's no point to it, but there's no goal. You know, Flora, he's not, he's not trying to, do, I mean, you know, you think of some of the famous films like Saving Private Ryan. There's a point, you know, these men are trying, uh, they're trying to find, yeah, they're trying to find this guy, Private Ryan, right? I've never seen the film. But they have this goal. They have this mission. There's no mission in Come and See. It's it's chaos. It is pure chaos. It is this kid, you know, traveling this landscape of horror, you know, of hell. He's really descending into hell. And he's just sort of wandering around Belarus and seeing horrific things. He's mainly, his main mission is to avoid the Nazis, to escape the Nazis, um, and to not get caught by them. That's basically sort of his mission. It's, this is not a war film about heroes. It's not suspenseful. It's not exciting. It's not adventurous. It is, it's about blood. It's about mud and shrieking and grief. I mean, that is what this is about, and, and horrific violence that is done to people's bodies. Um, something very unique about this film is the sound, and I think it adds to the horror of it. it there's not, like, you know, um, regular kind of music or anything like that until the very end. Um, I think Mozart plays in the last scene or something, or some kind of opera, but... um. The sound captured me right away because there is this scene where Flora, um, and I will say that the young man who um, stars in this film, Alexei Kravchenko, he was not a trained actor. He he was an an, an amateur, um, an untrained, and he is he gives a really great performance. I would I would really call this one of the greatest teenage or child performances in cinema history um it's extraordinary i think what he does in this film but there's this scene where um i think he's with glasha actually and he's in the forest and the thing that hovers over this film are the nazi planes the the planes in the sky it's like i think it's three four five times um, Flora will look up into the the sky and see the plane and you hear the plane it's this the engine of the plane and you know what that means you know what's coming it's this haunting destabilizing sound um, it's scary it's frightening when you hear that plane and he gets caught um, in the forest and there's a bombardment, there's bombs falling and you see the earth exploding. You see um, trees being felled and destroyed. You see this landscape just being just absolutely decimated. Um, 
and then you see the craters in the earth and um because it's so loud and it's actually really scary when you're watching it 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 puts you right in the perspective of flora of this teenage boy and what that must be to be in the forest and and bombs raining down around you that any time you could be hit i mean the the fear of it is very intense and he actually goes deaf for a little while so so we have um so we have the sound of the plane and then we have the sounds of the bombs and then we have the ringing of of flora's ears and he can't hear anything um and it just creates this symphony of horror for me the sound in this film it is it's unlike anything I've encountered personally in a film. Um, the the sound of bullets. Um, there's this scene where he gets a cow and he's trying to take a cow or something back to the partisans in the forest or, or, or the villagers or something. And he gets caught in this firefight with the Nazis or whatever. And there's just these guns just... Uh, the the it's at night too and you can see the light of the bullets um i don't know if it's bullets or i guess it's some kind of bombs or flares or something like that i don't know the 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 vocabulary for this necessarily it's this firepower you know and this ammunition going off and interestingly enough klimov said that that was real ammunition often that was used in the film so you have this teenage kid in this movie and like real bullets are flying by his head i mean i i question the necessity for that honestly because that's obviously really irresponsible and i think people obviously could have really gotten hurt or killed um i'm not sure why you have to use real bullets for that and endanger people's lives so i don't necessarily like that but um but the sound of the bullets, the sound of the artillery, the sounds of the bombs, that is one way in which this film conveys the fear uh, and the chaos and um, the horror of war. It is through that, it's through the sound and the soundtrack of hearing. It places you directly in the environment. It, com it completely transports you into this world of war and violence and bombardment and you are you're sucked into it but it's very frightening i mean i'll never forget the sound of those planes and then seeing the plane in the sky and it's just hovering there and you just can't imagine that you just and then the bombs raining down i mean that that whole scene was just terrifying absolutely terrifying to me I think with this film, Klimov easily could have focused on an adult, but he chooses to focus on children, and he wants to show, obviously, the perspective of the war from a child's point of view. So we're, we're in a child's point of view. We're in this innocent perspective. Um, we're in a perspective that doesn't understand what's happening or why it's happening. And, um, and I think that is a really effective way um to to do this film is is to use children so there's two major scenes that i really want to talk about that are haunting me and that i still am thinking about so 
the first is when Flora and Glossha, let me make sure, Glossha, yeah, I just want to make sure I'm saying her name right. It's when, so he's in the forest, he meets, he comes across Glossha, they sort of strike up a friendship, um, and they, they go back to his home, to his house, um, for some reason, and, um, nobody's there. It's empty. He had a mom, he had, um, some siblings, like, I think he had, uh, twin sisters that were younger than him. And so they go back and, and the place is empty. And he says, oh, I know, I know where they might be. And so they start to run to where he says that he thinks his family is. And as they're running, it's hard for me to talk about. It's, I've never seen a scene like this. As they are running, he's running and Glossha is, is a little bit of a ways behind him. And they're running and all of a sudden in the back of the house, which they had not seen when they were there. They only went in the house and then they took off. She looks back um, and she sees piles and piles of bodies in the back of the house. And she just starts to scream and cry, but she's still running. So it's this very intense scene. Um of grief of in you know of horror of um fear um it's just uh, i don't even know how to talk about it again i think this is a bit what klimov means when he says that he thinks the film is reserved and he thinks that he had some restraint because i think it could have been really easy to cl do a close-up of those bodies you know, and, and I have a real problem with films in the way that some of them, especially when it comes to the Holocaust, um, represent horror and, and represent, um, the Holocaust. There was a film a few years ago, years ago called Son of Saul. It was a Hungarian film and I think it actually won the Oscar for best foreign language film. And it was about the Sonder Commando at um i think it was the auschwitz yeah it was auschwitz death camp in poland um and it was about this man saul um who is part of the sonder commando the sonder commando were jewish prisoners who were tasked with um basically taking the bodies out of the gas chambers after people had died in them and taking the bodies to the crematorium um, it's, and then often the people of the Sonder Commando would be killed themselves so that they could never get out and, and tell the story of what had happened. I was really uncomfortable with that film because of what it showed. And even though it's in the background, it's sort of blurry a little bit. Although I would say some of those scenes were not very blurry, um, cause you, it, it's showing Saul in the gas chambers. It's showing people and it's showing naked people, you know, naked bodies. It felt, I, I was uncomfortable with it and I still can't articulate all my feelings about Son of Saul. I had high expectations for that film and I left it feeling really uncomfortable about the representation of the victims of the Holocaust and 
and the nudity and it felt exploitative in some ways to me personally other people thought very differently they there was rapturous praise for this film i disagreed with the praise i thought it was <clears throat> i'm just uncomfortable with showing naked people you know and and simulating their death and simulating all of that um i don't know if the camera should go into the gas chambers yeah i'm, I'm gonna say that i don't know if art can go into the gas chambers of the holocaust i don't know um i i tend to think that there are places that art cannot go that there are places that we that art cannot represent and so what do we do with the unrepresentable what do we do with the unspeakable and with the unsayable and um i just think that there are things that we cannot show and if we do try to show them we risk trivializing them we risk um i i think we just risk trivializing them uh, in some ways and and cheapening them or something i can't quite articulate what i want to say so what i felt like come and see did a really good job of is what it didn't show what it didn't show because it showed it showed some things but it didn't show everything and that's what and, and what we saw with that scene with glossa looking back at the bodies we see the bodies for a split second or maybe a few seconds we see we see these bodies piled up but then we're right back on glossa and flora and them running and them going and they go into this bog this mud bog or something and they so what what i say when i say this film is graphic or it's difficult it's not necessarily because you're seeing like like i said before you're not seeing intros you're not seeing that there's just there's something about this film that's difficult it's the sound it's the bombings it's it's so many things but there's so much there that's implied and there's so much there that's subtle we don't get a close-up of those bodies behind the house we see them where from glossa's perspective and she's several meters away from them we get a glimpse we get a glimpse of the horror we don't get a full-on close-up of the horror and for me that's the difference in what makes art great is that subtlety of not showing the bodies full on but showing them from the corner of your eye of implying that there is no way that you can comprehend this horror that there are places that the camera cannot go and there are things that the camera cannot show and that can be just as important think about really great writing how sometimes the white space on the page sometimes the silences sometimes what can't be written or can't be said can be just as powerful as what is written and what is said and so i think some of the greatest filmmaking is about what is not shown what is not revealed what is not exposed what is not answered you know often that ambiguity is really important that not everything is answered 
And so that scene to me was a masterclass in how do you approach, how do you represent horror without exploiting it, without making it pornographic, without turning it into spectacle the way I think Son of Saul kind of did at times. It's just that little glimpse, that little flash at the corner of your eye. You can't look at it full on. You can't confront it that way. You have to look at it from the side. You only get a glimpse of it. You don't get the full view of it. That is very important, I think. Um, the second scene is when they are rounding up the villagers of a nearby village um, in, in Belarus. And the, the Nazis have invaded. The Nazis have come into the village. There's a ton of them. And, um, and they round up the villagers and they put them into this building. It might be a church and there's children, there's women, there's the elderly. Um, there's all kinds of people, um, in, in being rounded up and, and put in this building. And Flora is able to escape. And I mean, some people escape it, you know, not everybody is put into the, into the church and then they set it on fire. And the thing is, is that Klimov does not go into the church while it's on fire. We don't see people being burned alive. We hear them being burned alive. We hear shrieks, we hear yells, we hear, um, we hear all of it. We hear the flames. You know, we see the flames. Again, he's pulling back. He is restrained. He is saying, I can't go into that burning church. Just like I couldn't go into that pile of bodies. There are places that the camera cannot penetrate. There are, there are places of darkness that we cannot go. But we are, from Flora's perspective, so Flora is witnessing this. He's watching it. And then there is this amazing scene that, um, where a Nazi, a Nazi officer comes and he puts a gun to Flora's head and they take this photo of them with this gun in Flora's head. And Flora probably thinks he's about to be executed. And then they just let him go. I mean, it's to me, what it conveyed was the arbitrary, aspect of life and death in the second world war that you were in a building that wasn't bombed and then a building down the block was bombed and all those people died or i've even heard stories from holocaust memoirs that i've read of people who you know they would go into these villages and they would have the jewish people dig a big old hole um and then they would put them put them on the edge of the hole and then they would shoot them and their bodies would fall into the grave. I've read stories about people where the bullet didn't kill them and they were underneath all these dead bodies and they escaped these mass graves and they lived and it was completely arbitrary that they lived. You know, it was, <laughs> there was no point to it. You know, there was no, it was chance. It was luck. It was, you know, you just got lucky and you happened to live. And so when the German officer, the Nazi officer let Flora go, I was reminded of that, that, 
yeah, that's the way some people survived. I mean, some people were about to be executed and then the the person just didn't go through with it. Or the gun jammed or this or that or whatever. And their survival was completely random. And it was completely like they didn't understand it. But that scene of the villagers is haunting. And, um... And, and we see it go up in flames and it's just, you imagine being a child and witnessing these things. These are things that adults can't even handle. And then you imagine being young or a teenager and your family's been completely slaughtered and now you're watching hundreds of people being killed. How does one even cope with that? Like, how do you even cope with that trauma? I, I don't even know. Um, something that this film shows really well, um, and, and doesn't do it in a graphic way, at least not to me, is violence against women. And, um, it does, sh it implies the rape of women, especially. And, um, there are several women who recur. I don't know if Glasha is all these women. Some of these women look like Glasha. They're blonde. They kind of have her... Glasha's very pretty. You know, she's blonde and, and beautiful. Um, I'm not sure if it was different actresses or, or... They all kind of looked similar, but I don't think it was Glasha. I think it was different women. And so we do see a woman at one time. And this is during the church burning. Not the church burning, but the people being burned in the building. We see this woman being pulled by her hair. It's this very visceral scene of, of her just being dragged by her hair. And um, later on, I guess it's the same girl. I'm not sure. We see a woman. Um, I think she has some kind of coat on or something. But her legs are bloodied. Her It looks like blood is coming from her genital area and her vagina. And the blood is streaking down her legs, um, her inner thighs, and, and down her legs. And that implies that she has obviously been raped and that she has gone through a great deal of sexual violence. But the thing is, is that Klimov never shows it. He doesn't show a woman being raped. He doesn't try to do some kind of rape scene. Instead, he shows the aftermath or the build-up to it. And he does show that violence against women. You know, the woman being pulled by her hair. Um, the woman, you know, with blood. She has blood coming out of her mouth. The one that uh, with the blood on her legs. And we just see, you know, that blood. And that is supposed to communicate to us what has been done to this to this young woman and so we are reminded of the atrocities that women went through as well during the second world war that women throughout europe and the soviet union were raped and um and it was horrific and it's not a story that gets talked about or told very often so so there's so much going on in this film. There's the soundtrack that is really haunting and destabilizing. There is um, there is the withholding of certain details of of certain um, of certain dimensions of the atrocity. 
where we're only shown things sometimes in a slant way or an oblique way. And there is a restraint there that I think Klimov shows. Um, doesn't mean that there's not graphic moments, you know, like with the bombs falling. And anytime you see blood, that's graphic. And you see people being shot. You see a man who his flesh has been burned off um, pretty much. So you do see these graphic things. He has to show something, you know. You can't necessarily not show anything. There are certain realities of the war that he has to show. But he doesn't show everything. And I think that restraint is what is really important about the film. Shows violence against women, you know, the the rape of women. Um how horror was horror for everybody, men and women alike. And the thing about these scenes, and that I was thinking about as I watched them, was that they're not real. You know, anytime you watch a film, you're watching something that is artifice, that is artificial, you know. It is constructed, it is manufactured, it is... It's not real, you know, it's it's a set, it's it's actors, it's, you know, so much of it is fake and artificial, and yet all of those things are used together to try to say something about our very real lives and the very, and the realities of the human condition. You know, all of it's simulated, but what what the greatest films do, and what this film in particular does, is that through these simulations and and through these um through these scenes we are reminded that things like this actually happened no it didn't happen exactly the way that you're seeing in the film you're not looking at a documentary um you're not seeing a real image but you're you're being told stories that happened you know, people were rounded up and put into buildings that were set on fire. Women were raped in the Second World War. Um, people had their families massacred and sometimes they saw piles of bodies. You know, it's a reminder that um, these things did happen to someone. And it matters that they happened. And in telling and in making the film, you're telling those stories. You know, you're telling them in a cinematic, artistic way, obviously, with certain artistic license or artistic choices that you have made. You are constructing something, and it is a piece of art, a work of art. But you're you're borrowing from reality, and you are reminded that things like this happened to someone. Things like this happened to many someones, to thousands and millions of people. And that's also where the power of this film comes from, is that these things happened in over 600 villages in Belarus. You know, these things happened to people. And we need to know about it. We need to know about the suffering and the pain. And um, and that leads me to my, really my final portion of this podcast that I want to talk about, which is why did I watch this film I've talked about it's brutal, it's grueling, it's graphic, it's frightening, it's scary, it's um, it's horrific. Um, why would I put myself through that? Why why would I watch a film about such a huge trauma? 
why do I watch so many films in general about suffering more than I watch films about happiness? I wouldn't say that I watch a lot of happy films or that I watch a lot of romantic films or love films or anything like that. Um, I would say I'm interested in the human condition and often the human condition is defined by pain and by suffering. I myself have been through a lot of pain and suffering in my life. I've been through a lot of loss, a lot of grief. Um, I have suffered, you know, and um, I have been traumatized and I have struggled to live and to cope with that trauma and to cope with the grief and to cope with the loss of people that I love, especially my father. You know, I, I talk about it a lot on this podcast that my father died in 2006 when I was 16 and it was a traumatic event and a defining event in my life. But before he died, I was already interested in suffering and in pain and I was drawn to art that was about suffering. I was already reading books about the Holocaust. I was reading Anne Frank's diary. I was reading Sylvia Plath and her poems about suicide and, and pain. So this is a subject that it matters to me. And pain does define our lives for a lot of people. It does. And no amount of joy can cancel out profound pain. I'm just going to be honest about that. You know, I could fall in love tomorrow. Everything great could happen to me tomorrow. And it doesn't touch what I have been through in the last decade or more since my father's death. It does not cancel out his death and the pain and the anguish and the torment that it causes me on a daily basis. It just doesn't. You know, I, I love nature. I love music. I love art. I love cinema. I've talked about on this podcast how cinema is really the closest I get to religion or to anything divine. And it's even all that, even love, you know, the love of my mother and my closeness to my mother, it just doesn't cancel out the suffering. You know, those things help you bear the suffering. But it doesn't take it away. And so I am interested in art about pain. I am interested in art about grief and loss and trauma. Maybe I'm looking for how do other people survive it? How do other people live with it? How can I live with it and survive it? You know what I mean? Maybe I'm looking for that. Um, I think that stories like this matter. I think when people are violated, when people are slaughtered and massacred on this scale, I think it matters. And I think it should be remembered and I think it should be learned. And I think that learning it can change you. Learning about Anne Frank and the Holocaust changed me. It gave me my ethical consciousness. It it showed me who I wanted to be. It showed me that life, all life matters, you know, 
that it's not okay to hurt people, that it's not okay to hate people, that hatred is not acceptable, that genocide is not acceptable, that racism and sexism and xenophobia, that these are very dangerous things and they must be confronted, they must be challenged, they must be resisted as much as possible because what they lead to is violence and genocide and destruction. They are destructive ideologies, always. And if I hadn't learned about the Holocaust, if I hadn't learned about the Second World War at an early age, I don't know who I would have become because I'm I'm from these very conservative, ultra right-wing areas, you know. I'm from a very rural area from the South where I was surrounded by people who believed these things, who said things about black people, who showed sexism and misogyny, who, you know, who didn't like immigrants and didn't like Hispanic people and said things about them. I am from that environment and I could have easily become like those people. What, what was different? I was from the exact same area. I went to the exact same school. <laughs> what made me different? What made it so that I did not buy in to those ideas and did not embrace that hatred? Perhaps it was these stories about war, about horror and atrocity and pain and suffering and it's like I said, that's what gave me my ethical consciousness. It's what gave me my morality. I don't want to hurt other people. I don't want to be part of anything that hurts other people. I want to be a force for good in the world. And, and so I think books and films and knowledge and history was part of that for me. This curiosity about other people's lives and what other people suffer and what they go through in the world. So these stories matter profoundly. And I think Klimov had to tell this story, you know, and, and it was his last statement and it was his final film, but he had to say it. He had to leave something behind. And so I want to um, I want to end with the words of Svetlana Alexievich, one of the greatest writers and one of my favorites. Also, this is from the Unwomanly Face of War, and I think that um, I think that it it resonates with what I'm trying to say about my my need to see stories about suffering and about war and and atrocity and genocide, and why I think these stories matter. You know is. And so she writes, quote, I listen to the pain, pain as the proof of past life. There are no other proofs. I don't trust other proofs. Words have more than once led us away from the truth. She goes on, quote, I think of suffering as the highest form of information, having a direct connection with mystery, with the mystery of life. All of Russian literature is about that. It has written more about suffering than about love. And so that was also, that resonated with me. My attraction to things about suffering rather than things about love, I guess. But I think that's a powerful quote. I think of suffering as the highest form 
of information having a direct connection with mystery. Suffering is information. These stories are information. And it's being communicated to us. And we are bearing witness to it through watching the film. Or reading the book or whatever. And in that way we carry these stories on. And that information is passed to us. And we have to do something with it. And hopefully for some it awakens your your humanity it awakens your morality it awakens your ethics and you become an ethical being through your through your interaction and your collision with certain kinds of art and i think come and see can be a productive and a generative collision it can be something that leads people to that ethical consciousness to that awakening of suffering, of the violence of war, and perhaps um, makes it so that they don't want to be part of that. They want to resist it. They want to fight against that. And they want to preserve life instead of taking life or hurting life. Because that's what's important is valuing human life you know and and not wanting to erase it or destroy it because there's too much destruction now there's too much hatred now and so i think come and see is a life-changing film and i think it can be um one of those films where you're just never the same um, especially if you see it very young i would imagine you know it it has its graphic moments it has its difficulties as I said, I had to stop at times because it was so intense. But that, but there is an ethical engagement in this film, I think, through what it resists showing, what it is restrained in what it, in showing, um, in in showing things from the perspective of a child instead of an adult. Um, it's just this. It's a powerful testament. It's a powerful legacy that I think Klimov left behind with this film. And um, I, I think it's my number one war film, honestly. Like, I don't think anything touches it, really. it's I've wanted to see it for years. It did not disappoint. It was a, a profoundly moving, intense, difficult experience. But sometimes film should be challenging, and sometimes it should be difficult, and sometimes we get something out of that like scenes of this film are still playing in my mind like i still see glasha looking back at those bodies and i hear her shriek and i hear and i see her in the mud and and um, those scenes in the mud are very visceral um i just i i just i feel haunted by this film in many ways it's why i had to talk about it and um I hope I did it justice. I was so worried that I wouldn't. So it's just it's a film I needed to talk about and I've said everything that I intended on saying and um I hope that you will see the film or if you haven't if you have seen the film, I hope this discussion was was helpful or enriching or or enlightening in some way. And um yeah. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. 
Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.